0: Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now, here's your host, Nicole Giantonio.
1: Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of LeftFoot, and I'm here to announce that our 12 audio based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution oriented steps to predictable success. Part of the LeftFoot GPS growth practice solutions for business development. Go to leftfoot.com GPS for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest is a recognized leader in legal operations innovation. The former assistant general counsel at Microsoft, she recently joined Law Geeks to provide strategic advice and leadership while also starting her own law firm consultancy, working with firms and alternative legal service providers on contract process improvement. The founder and principal at Inno Legal Services and chief legal strategist at Law Geeks, Lucy Basley, welcome to Left Foot. Thanks so much, Nicole. I'm really happy to be here. Great to have you as a guest. Lucy, you are our first repeat guest. So glad you agreed to come on our program. For our listeners that have listened to your first episode, which was episode 53, and for those that have been following your career, and those that are interested, why the move? Why did you decide to leave an organization like Microsoft, start your own law firm consultancy, and and join Law Geeks?
0: You're not the first to ask, surprisingly, or not surprisingly at all. After, I guess, myself being the first to ask, what am I thinking? What am I doing here? You know, it really all comes down to making an impact. I've been really blessed with my career and I've enjoyed every minute of my job and certainly my connection to Microsoft runs deep and is very real and I'm a big fan and and supporter. The thing is, in the job that I had, which was heading up legal operations, I was lucky that I got to really experiment and do creative things within our company. And to the extent I could share those stories and help influence others to change and innovate, I was able to do that. And I think it was a fantastic way to start to realize that there's so much more that can be done. And in order to do that that in order to have the impact on the industry that I hope to have and, and dream of having, I had to kind of do that unfortunately from the outside. And I say unfortunately only because of course I really did enjoy my job so much that it was a very, you know, difficult step. But at the same time, I think it's the right one because our industry is in need of thought leadership. It is in need of inspiration. And it is in need of practical help and advice, you know, to move it forward. So everything really came down to my ability to impact the industry. And I think I've made the right choice choice and the decision in order to have that broader impact.
1: Thank you. And and I feel the candor in that. And I do agree. I mean, the impact you can have outside when you're not just focused on one organization, but focused on the industry is definitely multiplied. So we talked in our pre-call chat about the fact that you've also started your own consultancy, working with law geeks and then starting your own consultancy. And you're calling it a law firm consultancy. Can you describe why that's the term you're using for our listeners? Sure. And actually, to even
0: be more precise, because I am a lawyer and I'm going to be very precise with my words, it is a law firm and consultancy. So I think it's very important that that distinction be clear. And I'll explain why. When I started thinking about going out on my own, what, what does that mean, going out on my own? And most lawyers asked, did I hang my own shingle? And that would imply, of course, that I opened a law firm. That's our lawyers speak. While others that weren't practicing attorneys assumed it would be a consultancy. And then I would, you know, provide consultation, whether to, to law firms or in-house, And as part of your introduction, you mentioned that I consult with alternative legal service providers, and that's true, but also in-house teams. What I realized is that I actually want to push the envelope on even the way I describe this new business of mine. It is a law firm because, A, I organized it that way under the organizational rules of Washington, state of Washington. But more importantly than that, I am interested in continuing to provide legal advice. I think that is an important aspect of any innovation that's happening in the legal industries. The ability to balance smart risk taking, which requires some legal advice, with operational efficiencies. So, by having a law firm, I can provide legal advice. I can help draft documents, review documents, and provide input on what contracts should look like, for example, if we're talking about commercial transactions practice. And coupled with that, and very complementary to that, is then providing consultancy or advisory work, advising whether it's in house teams or law firms on how to deliver or receive a legal service in a different way and in a new way. And the consultancy really focuses on the how around the what. So as a law firm, I can provide advice on the what. As a consultancy, I can then marry that with advice on the how. So I really wanted to kind of provoke the conversation that I hope other law firms are having. And we see it happening. Law firms are opening up and spinning off and creating divisions that are providing consultation, business operational consultation to their in-house corporate clients. I feel that every law firm should be moving in that direction. So when i had the choice to make of what am i going to be when i step out into this world i wanted to be very intentional that i'm actually both
1: Thank you. Thanks for that response. And, you know, it's interesting because we are hearing that more and more. We're hearing lawyers come on from big firms, from AM100, AM200 firms, talking about not only providing legal advice, but providing the processes and managing and authenticating the processes around the delivery of, again, not only advice, but legal services. So great opportunity. So Lucy, is there a reason this hasn't really been adopted by in-house departments or or is it starting to be and we're just hearing kind of that melding together, that collaboration, you know, we're starting to hear more about it. Has it been happening or is it or is it truly something that is new or new to the market?
0: Sure. So I think you said adopted by in-house departments. I think I think you're asking if it is adopted by other law firms, the structure, this kind of marriage of the two sides of legal practice and
1: operational guidance. I would say both. We're also seeing in-house departments relying on their law firms. They're frustrated with the pricing structures.
0: No, that's right. From the in-house perspective, I think they're going to adopt anything that is actually useful in solving their problem. And I think that's why law firms need to start thinking more holistically and being able to deliver a broader service, a broader suite of services and skill sets and functions to their in-house clients. The in-house clients shouldn't have to make decisions of whether they pick a law firm or they go with an alternative provider or what technology they need to enable all of these different aspects and suddenly have to piece together three four different solution providers all to solve potentially one problem or one area of problems, whether it's contracts or litigation or compliance work, anything that is a kind of a more repeatable business for them, a more repeatable set of work, they should be able to look to a law firm. So why isn't it more common? I think we're at the cusp of it becoming more common, frankly. I hope so. I just listened to your podcast with Brian Caves, Chief Innovation Officer, Katie. That was exactly what she was saying. I was so inspired. I I actually reached out and said, "Oh, oh my God, you get it, you're saying it. Who are these few of us out there that really are getting it and doing it? And there are, you know, at this point, still fewer than more, but I think it's the beginning of that wave. And big firms are doing it. Medium firms have probably been doing it. They just maybe haven't been calling it that or don't have kind of the, you know, the marketing plan around it. Maybe some of the big firms have with the resourcing they have. So it feels like it's happening. It might just need a clear name or a description so the clients also can value better what they're actually getting. So I hope it's happening. I hope it's the beginning.
1: It's interesting because you're right. The interview with Katie showed it, other interviews we've done with the firms that are really saying, hey, this could be a differentiator. We can go to the market and say that for in-house legal departments, we will coordinate not only your legal advice but these other needed services. That, that idea that you can offload work that's necessary but work that doesn't require a lawyer to do it, you can do it at a different price point with a different set of staff and then resources and technology where technology can be employed terrific. This is all leading into the question of, We've seen this buildup of in house legal departments, including large, in some cases, legal operations and legal purchasing teams. What is your thought on the effect of that? Was that something that was a driver that took place to really push this need? Or is it something that is now going to recorrect itself where those teams might actually be reduced if the law firms do take on this message of we need to provide that? We need to have those partnerships. We need to offer our clients this more one stop shop type? Of arrangement?
0: You know, from the in house perspective, I think there would be nothing more welcomed than a law firm that approaches it that way that you just last described, right? That way of saying, we need to do this, we can do this for you. I think right now we have a mismatch of needs. From the in house team and capabilities, probably in skill sets from firms. Now, some have that on both sides, but they aren't always finding each other. So it feels like there's a bit of a matchmaking that needs to happen between the attorneys in house who really want to buy in a different way. And I specifically am saying attorneys for now because the attorneys are oftentimes the decision makers and how their day job is done, how their actual work is performed. And that's operationalizing the practice of law. That is not infrastructural operational improvements right? That's not underlying technology. That is actually creating automation in the work that they do or strategically sourcing in a different way or resourcing the work that they do. The attorneys are still going to be the decision makers in most cases in-house. So it's that attorney that needs to be somehow paired with not just the law firm, but the particular attorneys at the law firm and their set of other professionals that they can bring to the table to help deliver a creative solution. But I do think that law firms are right now perfectly poised. They are best positioned to actually come in and solve that problem because first and foremost, they have the trust of the client. That is something they don't have to work to build. And it's not something they need to really cultivate or hope in-house teams are ready to take a leap or take a stretch. They're already in with some of the most complex, risky work that in-house teams have. So why not offer a fuller service and go levels and layers below that, right? And and pick up some of that other work that right now in-house teams are struggling to figure out how to resource whether technology or alternative staffing or you know, human resourcing. So I just can't emphasize enough that law firms are perfectly poised. They, they just need to take that leap and find the right clients.
1: What a great opportunity for those that are doing it, that understand it, that have been able to get on the path, have already invested, have technologists in-house. And and we've heard that. We've definitely heard that in the lifespan of LeftFo, which is almost three years now, that most of these firms, the non-lawyer staff is getting larger and larger. Great to hear from you that they are the most poised to take this on. And now, a word from our sponsor, Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you for tuning in to the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to energize your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will energize your efforts in three areas business development grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to Focus and Develop an Expert Reputation, Commercial Savoir Faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Leftfoot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to the GPS page at leftfoot.com. Let's dive into artificial intelligence that, of course, is now a part of your world in your role with Law Geeks. There was this study that I had the opportunity to read that Law Geeks did with a few prominent law schools, one being Stanford Law, and it talked about offloading commoditized tasks to artificial intelligence tools and and really to the technology and what was interesting in the study it was it actually paired a group of attorneys against the artificial intelligence solution for NDAs and the results were quite interesting when you read through it do you want to comment on that study and maybe the impact that would have on adoption assuming there's some preliminary results
0: so the study itself i have to say i was super impressed with you know, the way that it was done as a real research study I mean, there was there were data scientists that were, of course, involved, working very closely with real practicing attorneys, we were, you know, kind of regular lawyers who, who know contracts. So I love that it was built very much with an eye towards quality and substance. Now, the outcomes, of course, are fascinating. I don't know if they're too surprising for those who've been around technology, but it's always really good to see it documented this way. It has sparked a ton of conversations, I'm sure you've seen online. And the feedback has actually been super positive for the most part, people are reading this going, wow, okay, this is good to know. This is another option now. This is something for me to consider. This is really becoming real. You know, I think that's the evolution that AI is going through right now as we consider what its role can be in the delivery of legal service. Where does it fit? Is it, is it still science fiction? Is it is it far off future? Well, it isn't anymore. It really isn't. And just like the way of all computing and its evolution, and again, having come from an amazing, if not best technology company in the world, I've seen the evolution. I've seen the impact that technology makes, even in my own day job as an attorney in-house at this amazing technology company. So I can only imagine for those people who are removed from technology, seeing a study like this, I think really helps A, validate and B, I think just inform that there is a viable solution out there now. So I, I was really impressed and now I'm happy to be connected with it and a part of it really
1: fantastic. It's interesting because when I think about artificial intelligence and its impact on the legal space, legal environment, and then we talk about e-discovery, I mean, e-discovery became old news as soon as artificial intelligence came on because now it's more accepted. And you know, as I've talked to different law firm partners on left foot and the work that we do, it's really interesting because there's this acceptance that there's a lack of comfort. And then of course, becomes just the way we do business. It becomes the way that we work with clients. You have to have it. That said, from your work in house, from your work at... At Microsoft, obviously your work now with Law Geeks. Do you feel that the lawyers, the partners in these large firms, those that have responsibilities to grow their practice, to educate the, the teams that they have working with them, have they taken the time, let's say it that way, to understand what artificial intelligence can do and how it works so that they can actually say that they are comfortable and aware and knowledgeable about artificial intelligence and how it works?
0: Very broad question. I'm going to answer it then very very, very broadly and simply with uh, no. No, they don't. They don't and they may be don't need to understand that it's artificial intelligence. What they need to understand and appreciate is that there is now technology that is available that can help their day job, that can enable them, that can make them faster, that can help them scale, that can help them focus on just the cool, sexy stuff they really want to be doing. It's really about technology in the next iteration of what technology can do. So if you look back, what is it, 20 years? Email. And everything that email had to go through from questions around privilege and confidentiality and and really attorneys buying into using email. There was a ton of fantastic things to read when that was first coming out out there about I'd have to go find it on Microfish, I guess, if that even exists. But really, it took me by surprise when I had this conversation recently with somebody and I thought, my goodness, that's a perfectly good example. Sure, right now, it's so obvious. I can't believe I'm comparing AI to email. And I'm not comparing it from a technology perspective. I'm comparing it as an example of technology becoming an enabler to some of the most basic things that attorneys do. One day, 10 years from now, maybe 15, I would like for lawyers to say, I can't believe I used to even touch those types of contracts. That, to me, is a success measure, right, personally, and and the work I'm doing with geeks and the work I'm trying to do to change the industry. So that should be where we are now with, I can't believe we didn't have email and we used to have to walk things down the hall, right? Or electronic signature. When will that day come where we can't believe we are still having to route documents for physical signature and we're on the cusp, right? Soon that will be a common statement. That's what I think we can do with what what Geeks is bringing to the table from a technology perspective. So it isn't about knowing AI, but lawyers need to know what all tools they should have in their toolbox. It's not just a yellow pad and pen anymore, and it hasn't been for a while. So what else goes in that toolbox? And these are the kind of solutions they need to be aware of.
1: No, it's terrific. And, you know, so we talk about efficiency, we talk about speed, we talk about cost, we talk about getting lawyers to the work that they actually do want to do and and really requires their knowledge and their judgment. So now you've had the opportunity to look under the hood at Law Geeks, and I'm sure there's other things happening there. Was there something that you've seen since you joined that is almost part of the next wave? Before I jump to the future, let's talk right now about what's happening in legal tech and
0: attorney capabilities in buying legal tech. I don't know about you, but when I go to my mechanic, I don't ask questions when I'm told that something needs to be done to my car. A, I trust my mechanic. And B, they're the expert. Okay. I use that as an example because I think that there are very good, capable, amazing attorneys who really just do not have any expertise or background or skilled experience to purchase technology solutions. We rely on technology experts to do that in every other aspect of our professional lives. Again, they tell us why we're using Outlook and why we have to you know, upgrade maybe to the next version of Windows, and they do that. But when buying legal tech, especially the front office legal tech, attorneys are not in the best place to make that decision alone. But guess what? Neither are the technologists because it is such a domain-heavy solution. So I think right now what I'm seeing that really attracted me to law geeks and that I'm not unfortunately seeing as broad across the legal tech communities I would like to, is a really honest approach to what products can do. It's an honest approach to engaging the customer. It's an approach that helps understand where in the customer's processes a technology could fit. Can it fit? Is this the right solution for actually what the customer explains their pain points are? Just because they requested a demo doesn't mean it's the right thing for them. So I think I don't want to underestimate how important it is that right now there is an abundance of legal technology solutions that is just flowing the market in a great way. It's causing a great conversation. It is alerting people to new ideas and new ways of thinking, but it isn't always an actually very good solution for the problem. So I'll get off my soapbox on that, but I think there needs to be a real focus on how legal technology can be sold in a more effective and frankly, honest way so that the, the customer is really being understood. And in this case, the customer is an uneducated buyer necessarily, and that's okay. That's what I think we have to understand. So I think that is a big difference
1: other sales motions and other other technology great point is it being sold Two firms, two in-house departments in a way that appropriately addresses their need, whether it's to solve a problem, make an improvement. But there's also the learning curve of once they actually buy it. Lucy, in your last interview you did with Left Foot, you raised that. I know that Mary O'Carroll raised it in her interview with us. A lot of these technologies, when they're brought in-house, there's initial training, educating the lawyers how to use it, and then following up, making sure it's being used, connecting it to other processes. Is the learning curve, is that part of the issue that we see a lot of these technologies not being used, firms not stretching out with them.
0: Right, so it's a really good point, and it's a very important question that you're raising. Because what's happening with technology is well? Technology is becoming more readily available and accessible, and through you know, software as a service solutions, there's an expectation of click things go live, and you're just clicking away. It is like your online purchasing experience. It is like buying a ticket online or booking a hotel. I mean, it's there is that expectation because the technology actually is ready for that. But again, are the buyers ready for that? And depending on their comfort with technology, the learning curve can be much steeper than what they're used to. Now, that begs the question, is that then really customer-friendly? If the learning curve is that steep and there has to be such a deep level of engagement post-implementation, what is the feedback loop looking like to the product designers and to the usability? So there is a learning curve, definitely, because the difference here is that this isn't something that people are used to doing anyway. They're just doing it a different way, whether it's hailing a taxi and now they're getting on an online app, right? This is now taking a very very personal and intellectual part of their life their professional life and trying to turn that into an automated process it's a different feeling right there's a different emotion that goes with with that and the learning curve definitely could be a little bit steeper so I think tech companies need to have a different focus on what it means to have an implementation like this and that's actually one of the great fun parts and I have many of my job with log geeks is thinking about how are we engaging our customers especially when we're engaging directly with attorneys that's an issue That shouldn't be underestimated in terms of legal tech right now
1: backing up to the question about the future what are you saying that you would consider truly innovative truly part of the future
0: i see a law firm that comes to an in-house team and shows them and can really mindfully explain and inspire a client a corporate department to say we're going to solve your contracting problems and we're going to do it with this perfectly stratified set of resources Of which there are layers of partner level, associate level, flexible professionals that can work in a different working style and environment and a robot. I think there's something so exciting, so sexy, so so inspirational about that. And it's cool. Of course, we're not talking about Rosie, the robot from the Jetsons. Yes, I'm dating myself, but come on. There's enough of you, I think, listening that remember the Jetsons. It's not a physical robot. That's the beauty of artificial intelligence. It lives in your desktop. But it's really this vision that I want attorneys to start absorbing, that it isn't about a law firm and an in-house team. And it's just those two sets of professionals that come together. It's a law firm that, though, is bringing with it an entire spectrum of experienced, capable resources that include a robot. I think that's that's what I want to see.
1: I think about the fact that many things I do today include a technology thinking for me. Let's say it that way. So just an example, when you get the push ads and shopping, the technology helping me think, well, I might want to use that getting comfortable with the technology. And I think even a more relevant example would be banking and investment consulting and How many things we do today where we're not really relying on a human, right? We're relying on technology to really present a scenario to us. I'm not seeing it as so far off. Going back to that point about a lawyer saying, but hold on, this is my profession. This is what I know. How can the technology make suggestions? Any points on how we can get our lawyer community more comfortable with that? Absolutely. So I think one thing that's
0: really, really important is in most cases, the technology is not making a decision. The technology should be bought to help in making the decision, to enable the decision to be made faster or maybe more effectively. That's what the technology should be doing. So just as lawyers had to get comfortable, if you think about 20 years ago when outsourcing first kind of became a became a thing, and then contracts was less than that, it was maybe 10 years ago, you know, getting comfortable with letting go of that work and having somebody else sitting God knows where under God knows whose you know, direction doing things on my behalf as a lawyer. I'm accountable for this. How can I be okay with this? I think what starts happening, there becomes an inflection point where the volume of work alone in-house is so completely overwhelming and budgets are not limitless where you have to start doing trade-offs. You have to take smart risks. That is actually the lawyer's greatest value add is smart risk-taking and being a business partner to the actual ultimate business. That's the real client, not the lawyers. We shouldn't be clients, right? So I think to me, getting attorneys comfortable is creating probably some other scenarios where they can see, oh, wow, you know, it, it isn't different. Relying on technology to help me is no different than relying on a really good paralegal to help me, on a really good outsourced solution where there are alternative staff helping me, or in some cases, with all due respect, for a law firm to help me. I don't know why we have become so comfortable and complacent that a law firm will always provide 100% quality in their work. I'm going to offer that that's actually not true. Of course, we don't do enough to make. And now that I'm out on my own, (laughs) I can have very strong opinions and more vocal about it. Of course, that's a whole other topic. But we've had this false comfort in paying a very big premium with an expectation of 100% quality. And that's just not the reality. So, as attorneys are realizing that, there's no reason why they shouldn't be then, of course, also realizing that, well, hey, if I'm actually not getting 100% and I'm paying so much, wouldn't it be nice to pay a little less and get that same less than 100%? And what's my comfort with less than 100%? The volume of work does not allow for a hundred percent. It just doesn't. And frankly, there's another bigger question that they should be asking. Does this work even need legal review at all? And if the answer is probably not, then wouldn't you feel better at least just having a robot do a quick pass at it? (laughs) So that's a bigger question. That's why every law firm should also be a consultancy. They should be asking those questions
1: terrific response brings a lot to the surface. So it's interesting, Lucy, every in-house counsel that we have interviewed, whether general counsel or team member or legal operations, the lawyers that we've interviewed in-house have consistently talked about having to take some risk because they had to make decisions based on business need and business timelines. And there's always risk there. So it's not so foreign to that group of lawyers that are in-house, probably more foreign to the teams of lawyers at firms that have the time, and in many cases, resources, to be able to really stretch out with a matter and look at every aspect of it. Leads to a great next question. We have heard about outcomes and looking at outcomes and making decisions on whether to take a matter a particular direction or not from a lot of our guests. And and that's inclusive of Alan Bryan at Walmart. It's inclusive of Danny from the Department of Justice. And Dan's working with a team and they're looking at volume and the volume of legal matters that... they're dealing with, they have to look at outcomes. Let's look at the different ways we can handle the matter and make business decisions on whether to go forward or, in cases, settle, et cetera.
0: It should all be about outcomes. It really, really should be about outcomes. We're going again through this evolution right now in legal services, and that we're just now learning to buy for outcomes. Right? Law firms are starting to think about how do they deliver for outcomes. So it is a natural next step. And there are, you know, there's a lot going on right now on value-based pricing. You know, value-driven. To me, those are all related. Right? It's about the end goal, the outcome. What, what what are we trying to really accomplish? Why am I sending you this, you know, this piece of work? I think AI actually is gonna bring us that much closer to being more methodical in how we think about Outcomes of how we value them, how we, you know, frankly put a price tag on them. So we're just at the cusp. There is a lot right now going on in, you know, predictive learnings or predictive technologies and trying to really kind of look ahead and use the technology to, while it can look behind, give us insights into what could happen in the future. I do think that's right now what we're on the cusp of. Now, from a technology perspective, it'll be here before we know it. And in many cases, I think people would argue that probably it is, but its application to legal, given the conversation, we're having right now and all of your previous podcasts and where we are as an industry. I think we're still a bit far from that. I would love to see some early adopters coming down the pike, and they probably will, but they will be few and far between.
1: As we've had this conversation, I'm thinking back to earlier in my career where I worked in the insurance industry. I worked for a health plan. We started to talk about not having a licensed insurance professional review a hospital claim to determine what should be paid or not based on the plan. So the plan in this case could be like the law, the insurance person who's evaluating that claim and really determining, adjudicating, could be like the lawyer, frankly. The insurance industry has gone a long way to say everything goes through the technology and then it will produce a result. It will produce a determination. And what we're going to do going forward, when things get really complicated, consumers, members of those plans, come back and say, re-review it. And then it'll typically go through a different process, similar to what we're talking about. I think that is happening in litigation. I think there's some great
0: technology out there that is culling and mining all of the information that's publicly available in courts. Cases, cases that have been filed, which firms defended, which firms, you know, won, what was the amount of the judgment, what were the factors that were, you know, actually in the pleadings, what were the, the facts, in which jurisdiction, under which judge? So I think that might be similar to what, you know, what you're alluding to with insurance claims, right? There is actually already technology that is doing that. And I think that's making some really good progress. That is also easy for people to grasp because it mimics what humans have been doing for decades. Knowing the judge in that court, knowing that firm that has that lawyer who plays golf with that judge always happens to win or, you know what I mean? There's kind of um, a natural connection to the experience already and this is helping to automate. So this is a little bit more similar to kind of the example we gave with, you know, getting a taxi or booking a hotel room and now using different technologies to enable a common experience. What I think we don't do as much is that kind of predictive analysis in the contracting side on the commercial transaction side. I also see it, by the way, happening in compliance, right? What are the kind of factors that lead to compliance issues? How do we start culling that information of historical compliance cases and then trying to predict it. So I think you're spot on. And I do think it's actually happening. I just don't know if it impacts a broad community of the legal industry, but maybe a more focused one. But again, as that picks up traction, my friends and colleagues down the hall are gonna share stories and say, wow, it's working with you in litigation. Yes, I'm on the completely opposite side, you know, of, of the practice spectrum, but isn't there something like that for me? So I think that all helps, right? Those testimonials, right, of happy customers, <laughs> that
1: helps. And people can make those relationships. Anything that becomes cumbersome, okay, there's got to be something to help me do this more efficiently or do it for me. Is it different in the States versus other markets that this is being adopted in other countries more quickly, or is it kind of on the same trajectory?
0: I'll broaden the question to legal tech. If we broaden the question that way, I have to say I was really, really impressed with what's going on in the UK. The firms there are advanced. They feel like they are ahead of uh, a lot of our firms here. And again, I hate generalizations. My hunch though, is that there is a sense of legal tech and legal innovation in the UK that is really palatable. I mean, you can really feel it. It's buzzing. Now, outside of the UK, there's pockets, but obviously then the next big places is going to be certainly the States. And what's nice, I don't feel like it's even necessarily regional in the states it's not limited to the valley or you know to the east coast I mean it's it's really quite broad so that was just interesting to me and I don't know what it was about obviously specifically in London not just the UK but London is certainly a hotbed right now of innovation so it's hard to kind of explain why why that is now I will say also they have an alternative business structure of course in the UK that allows you know law firm legal services to be delivered by other you know partnerships with other businesses and other business leaders and not attorneys alone. So there is a whole different dynamic there that's probably ahead of the U.S. And we see in the U.S. how hard it is to move from our regulatory box or uh, limitations around the unauthorized practice of law. So I think that has something to do with it as well. It's certainly opened the, the thinking much quicker. It's enabled a lot of other professionals and certainly the big four to really push the envelope and create, again, this healthy, healthy tension for innovation.
1: We just started a series and we're interviewing a number of major managing partners. And we just interviewed a managing partner at Travers Smith. We're really focusing on the EU and UK markets just to see, is there a difference? That's very helpful. Thank you. I will continue to ask them questions about kind of how they're operating and how they're embracing technology. Lucy, this has been terrific. Thank you. At this point, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that you think would help them either with the adoption or you know being open to technology? Or is there something we haven't addressed today that you think would be impactful?
0: Two things. One, let's remember the ultimate client. The ultimate client is the business. It is not the legal department and it's not the lawyers that are dealing with each other. So if we can be a little bit more empathetic to the needs of the actual business outcomes, I think the whole industry will have no choice, no choice but to be the most efficient and smooth operating machine that it can be. That would be a natural outcome if we really put the business first, number one. And number two, I'd say when it comes to adopting technology, think back before email. Just think back before email. There is no reason why automating legal tasks should be perceived as so overwhelmingly frightening or confusing, then it should be doing so many other tasks that we do now rely on technology for, even within our professional lives, as basic as email to spell check. There's some interesting article going around right now about do lawyers even trust spell check? But I think we just need to kind of get over a lot of our concerns. We need to accept that the speed of business just simply cannot tolerate the way legal services have been delivered in the past.
1: We have to move forward, Lucy. Two great last points. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot.
0: Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.